John Barry is the author of the 2004 book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It is a comprehensive study of the 1918 influenza pandemic, which is suddenly more relevant than ever before amid the COVID-19 crisis. Today, he talks about lessons we can learn from that tragic outbreak a century ago. Let's listen in. We're very fortunate to have John Barry as our speaker today. Uh, John is the author of The Great Influenza, the, the definitive book about the, uh, the Spanish flu from 1918 and 1919, uh, a New York Times bestseller, and has resulted in John being uh, an acknowledged expert on pandemics and on the on influenza. He served on a number of really important boards as a consultant and uh, written two, actually now two, I think really thoughtful uh, op-eds in the New York Times. So uh, another really extraordinary speaker. And I think, uh, John, we will really look forward to your insights in terms of uh, your thoughts about what we could learn maybe from 1918, 1919, and how we can apply uh, your learning to uh, a solution to what we're going through right now. So if you could share with us your kind of overview and insights, and then I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions. This is a, a very thoughtful group that's great at dialogue. So I'll turn it over to you, John. Okay, well, thanks. Uh, let me start by saying just before the hour turn, uh, folks were saying how yesterday, uh, they appreciated the fact that uh, the scientific uh, representatives are asking for your support. I think uh, WHO could use your support as well. Uh, I think the idea of cutting off aid in the middle of a pandemic is beyond insanity. Uh, so any of you who have any influence on this administration or on someone who could put some pressure on this administration uh, to continue its support for WHO. If they have a complaint, fine, after the pandemic, take care of it, but not now. Uh, I guess I'll uh, start, I actually thought the whole thing would be a Q&A, but it's easy enough for me to uh, make a couple of comments. Uh, the first is, you know, the about the lessons from 1918. Uh, the first is to tell the truth. I think if you expect the public to do what you uh, want them to do, you need to be honest with them. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't gotten that. Uh, the second lesson involves social distancing. I was involved in the conceptualizing of the, uh, under the Bush administration, the plans for non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, they've obviously proven themselves to be very effective. Uh, frankly, we've gotten better compliance than I would have expected. Uh, the various, uh, in, in almost every state, uh, there has been significant progress. Uh, I'm in New Orleans, which was a hot spot, and I didn't see the latest numbers for Orleans Parish, but I know a couple of days ago there was uh, zero deaths in Orleans itself, not necessarily in the state of Louisiana. That, that was a huge step forward. Uh, I guess in terms of, you know, so the question is, what do we do now? And uh, in the op-ed today in the Times, I uh, tried to address that in terms of what to expect from the virus itself. You know, we have to remember this is not influenza. It's a different virus. Uh, we've got to be careful when we try to use another pandemic caused by another virus, uh, you know, in terms of an analogy, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not useful at all. There are obviously a lot of similarities between influenza and this virus. They're both respiratory. The transmission's virtually identical. Oddly enough, the pathology of this virus is almost identical to the 1918 virus, although it's a little different, quite a bit different actually from seasonal influenza. Um, People today are dying of acute respiratory distress syndrome. That's what a lot of people died from in 1918. Although oddly enough, sort of a catch-22 situation, your immune system, as you probably know, changes over time. It's strongest when you're young. 
weakened, it gets weaker when you're older. In 1918, the peak age for death was 28. Roughly two thirds of the dead were between 18 and 45. Over 90% of the excess mortality was actually people under 65 years old. And what was happening was the 1918 virus, uh, unlike seasonal influenza, was binding to cells deep in the lung. The immune system was trying to eliminate the virus. It has very lethal weapons it can throw at the virus. And the battlefield was the lung, which was essentially getting destroyed in the effort to kill the virus. Older people in 1918, it probably, almost certainly actually, been exposed to a virus very similar to the 1918 virus, which gave them some immune protection against it. Uh, it's really the only explanation for why they escaped so much. And yet that earlier virus was not virulent at all. So it was so mild that it essentially disappeared from medical history. Today, what's happening is younger people are dying, but obviously the chief target target is elderly. Uh, I don't feel elderly, but I'm over 70. Uh, and of course, it seems to be gender specific. Roughly, you know, two thirds of the victims are, are male. Uh, and the older people, apparently the, their immune system is weaker, so they can't eliminate the virus and keep it from advancing. But it's still strong enough that the same mechanisms that cause the so-called cytokine storm, which occurred in 1918, is occurring now. Uh, it's a little bit of the background on the pathology. In terms of where we go now, again, that's sort of what the op-ed was about, uh, what I expect in terms of waves. Uh, there are several factors that go into the creation of a wave. Seasonality is one of them. Susceptibility to the population is another. Uh, respiratory viruses, we don't know this for sure about COVID-19, but it's probably the case because it is the case for most respiratory viruses. Uh, they tend to be seasonal for two reasons. Number one, the virus survives outside the body better in cold weather and low humidity, so it'll last longer on a doorknob and so forth. The second reason is epidemiological, that more people are indoors, often with poor ventilation in the winter, uh, as opposed to outdoors in the summer. So in the case of influenza, you also get the mutation of the virus. It shifts a little bit all the time. So that's why you need a new vaccination every year. Everybody on this call, no doubt, knows that. Um, but in 1918, that wasn't the case. And I don't expect it to be the case here. The reason is susceptibility trumps seasonality. In 1918, the lethal second wave started in July, in the middle of summer in Switzerland. It ended in January in Australia, the middle of the summer in Australia. Uh, and it only got to Australia that late, uh, actually because uh, they had a very effective quarantine of incoming ships. They finally leaked when some VIP got off a ship in January. The result is 40% of the Australian population was infected with the virus. Uh, I you know, think something like that is going to happen now. You've got probably about 95% of the population, less so in a place like New York, but overall, about 95% of the population is probably still susceptible to the virus. It's highly transmissible, significantly more contagious than influenza. So if it were left to its own devices, it would just spread widely and wildly through the summer. It is not being left to its own devices. Obviously, we do have measures in place. Uh, and what happens with those measures is, is going to determine what kind of waves we have. You know, if we do things right, and frankly, right now, I'm not that optimistic that we will, but if we were to do things right, you know, we would have a sort of steady 
transmission once we come out of lockdown. And it would be sort of, as I, the analogy I use or in the op-ed piece, sort of an undulating swell. And occasionally you'd have an outbreak that would be a little bit more intense than that. I use the phrase, angry whitecaps. Uh, Want to call it a forest fire somewhere, that'd be fine too. Uh, however, if we don't come out with controls in place, uh, we certainly run the risk of a major outbreak. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Atlanta turn into something like New York. Uh, probably won't be as bad because there still are, you know, social distancing advice, even in Georgia. Um, but anyway, I, I, you know, I think that's as good a place as any to stop and take questions. Uh, so if you want to put your hand up or sign up on chat for that, but let me ask, let me ask one question, John, because um, when I got this assignment yesterday, I, I tried to read your book. I saw it was 550 pages. I knew that wasn't going to happen, but I did read the first, the beginning and the end. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm slightly dangerous. And by the way, I'm going to read the rest because it's fascinating. Everybody should really uh, read it. Particularly, I love the history of, of medicine and, and medical science in the United States. It's a really fascinating story. But in your book, you talk about the fact that we really needed to, to uh, use NPIs, non-pharmaceutical intervention. But then you're very skeptical about the ability to implement NPIs. Uh, and now this time it does seem we're doing a little bit better or substantially better than, than you had anticipated in the book. Much better. Uh, do you have any thoughts about why that's happening or um, why we're being more effective this year than you had anticipated and what it would take to continue that? Well, I mean, just to back up on that, it's funny. Uh, D.A. Henderson is a friend of mine. He was the guy who rid the world of smallpox uh, for WHO. He's deceased now, uh, but he and I would go to these meetings with modelers and we would be in agreement because he had real world experience of what it was like in smallpox. I had uh, sort of a voyeuristic real world experience from having looked at history. You know, we know what was going on when people tried to take you when you know, healthcare workers uh, tried to take care of Ebola. Many of them were attacked, some were actually killed. So I was not too optimistic. Uh, I guess the, you know, people are afraid and Tony Fauci was effective. Mm -hmm. uh, and the measures that we have put in place are actually much more extreme than any that were implemented in 1918. 1918, we were at war. Essentially every industry was considered a war industry, anything that actually produced anything, something. Uh, they were all essential services. The only thing that was closed down in 1918 uh, was, you know, public gatherings. So that meant theaters, church services, bars, restaurants, stuff like that. The actual, the rest of the economy, that's a relatively small fun, uh, part of the economy, particularly in 1918, although theaters were a lot bigger because you didn't have TV, you didn't have radio, you didn't have the internet. Uh, but the rest of normal economic life continued. Now there was tremendous absenteeism caused either by fear or somebody was sick or somebody stayed home to take care of somebody sick. So in places we have, have data, you had absenteeism quite often in excess of 60%, uh, which certainly interfered with economic activity. But Nothing was closed the way we're, we're taking the measures much more extreme. So even with leakage, even with people not complying, uh, the impact is, is significant. And frankly, in the planning meetings that we had, we weren't really contemplating taking measures as extreme as we have taken. Uh, so you know, the, the result is I am pleasantly surprised. Dan Webb, you had a question? John, very nice to meet you. And I have great admiration for your background and your expertise. I, I read your op-ed piece. And uh, I'm the chairman of a major law firm with a big office in Chicago. We're closed. 
uh, we want to come back into commerce. We're like everybody else. I have a practical, pragmatic question about social distancing that I'm curious. I'm getting a lot of questions about. We're trying to bring back several hundred people into the work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, in the work environment we live in, we can social distance in our work environment. People are not on top of each other. They can communicate. We can even go to court. We can probably do almost everything in doing what I believe to be social distancing. However, I'm getting employees saying, but we're going to pass each other in the hallway going to the men's room. We're going to stand next to each other getting on an elevator. And so as far as the actual infectious nature of this disease, I'm trying to figure out what policies when we bring every, we got to get everyone back into commerce. And, and I understand, yes, well, we can bring people back slowly, but I don't know how slowly we should do it. OK, because I'm wondering why if we social distance appropriately and if we have everyone wear masks and gloves all day long, will that work in a normal environment where we're not on top of each other? OK, yeah, it's hard to retrofit a building. Ventilation makes a huge difference. Uh, Elevators are a problem. Uh, Public restrooms are a real problem. Uh, This virus actually probably transmits through oral fecal route as well as, uh, you know, I don't want to kind of sounds awkward to say it, but, you know, flatulence can actually spread this disease. Uh, You know, that was proven in SARS. It's very likely in this disease as well. You know, you can't run ultraviolet lights all the time because that is very, very dangerous to people. In terms of setting something up, and I'm not an expert on this, I I do know that there are commercial applications for ultraviolet lights. Uh, You know, whether they would work in the restroom, you know, whether you can have something that and this is total speculation. Uh, believe me, I don't know any. What I, I may not know what I'm talking about. But just as the lights may go on automatically uh, when somebody enters the restroom, if they're automated, as many modern uh, rooms are, perhaps you could have ultraviolet lights go on when nobody's in there. I, I don't know. That's you know off the top of my head. Elevators are also a problem. Uh, I don't have a solution for for that. Uh, you probably familiar with uh, studies that say pointed out that air conditioning uh, spread the virus. Uh, you know, I, I would get an architect and an expert on, on ventilation to look at your building and make recommendations as to what could be done to retrofit. Well, John, here's my, and, I guess my biggest question in terms of, I, I, well, oh, I apologize. Okay. Go ahead, John. Uh, if it's possible to make corridors one way, it may not be possible. I don't know the arrangement uh, in your building, uh, but that would be that would certainly prevent people from passing in the, each other in the halls. Although that kind of interaction is generally not particularly dangerous, but it might make people feel a lot better. John, so I'd like to simplify my question because I think it applies to large numbers of workspaces in, in the bringing people back into commerce. If you are in an environment, in a work environment, where you can social distance by and large throughout the day, you wear masks all day long, you wear gloves all day long. I think, to me, that's a fundamental question as to whether in the normal work environment, we can bring people back into that environment and start functioning with commerce and be okay, or whether the the virus is such, that's probably not going to work. No, I think that... You know, it depends how widespread it is in your community at that moment in time also. Uh, you know, that's why monitoring, you know, the numbers is so important. And you can also, uh, if you're large enough to set up a testing facility and test your employees, all these things. But in terms of just the social distancing part of it, yeah, I think that could probably work. Uh, the gloves are not necessary solution because once your gloves start touching something, they're as bad, they're the same as your hands. You'd have to be taking gloves off, you know, every time you touch something new and put on a new pair of gloves. Uh, It's a lot easier just to wash your hands. 
you know, I don't know, it's not been established in this disease, but as a general rule, I think it's considered that about 20% of respiratory disease is transmitted hand to mouth or hand to eyes uh, or nose, whatever. Uh, you know, if you could cut out 20% of the transmission or let's say you're 90% effective and you cut out 18% of the transmission, uh, that, that would be significant. But gloves aren't really answer because they get contaminated too. Uh, you know, if you can socially distance, then your then your problems. What I said at the beginning, the elevator and the restroom. Uh, if you can, in, in some way, change the dynamics in those two places, uh, then it's okay. If you're lucky enough to be on the third floor, then everybody walks, but you're probably not not in Chicago. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Uh, George Vandenberg had a question. You know, I'm uh, um, I'd be curious as to your sense of the extent to which social behavior is going to persistently change throughout the population or in certain percentages of the population. Obviously, that has both a social impact as well as an economic impact. If we're not going to go to restaurants and we're not going to do anything until we get a reliable vaccine, which uh, is going to take a while. Okay, there are sort of two questions there. One is short term and one is longer term, uh, or at least that's the way I read it. One is in terms of actual compliance and one is in terms of impact this has on the way we live and so-called new normal. Well, uh, if you think of that the states are, quote, opening up, however that means, yeah, I don't believe that people's behavior is going to go back to the way it was when we were No, I, I agree with you. And so uh, I'm just curious to what, uh, you know, we're going to use Zoom. We're going to travel less. We're going to have more, you know, it's going to change the behaviors and thus the demand on various industries, uh, depending on the extent to which we've actually altered our uh, behavior, as you say, short term and then longer term. Yeah. Well, short term is relatively easy to make a prediction, maybe inaccurate. I may be wrong, you know, but I think already you see compliance eroding even in uh, places where, you know, I'm in New Orleans, I think our governor is doing the right thing. He has not released uh, really anything, just made the tiniest motion toward that. He said he'll look again in two weeks. He is following the numbers. Nonetheless, you know, I go for walks every day. I live in the press corps. I see more people out now and I see them getting more careless now. Uh, that's gonna continue as time goes on. Even I, and at the very first meeting in the Bush administration about non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, we had in there the infection control chief for the hospital in Hong Kong that had the best record on healthcare workers not getting infected during SARS. There's probably no healthcare worker. A lot of them died in SARS. And what he told us he did and why it was so successful was not that he, everybody knows what to do. He just made sure people did it. Went back to Vince Lombardi, blocking and tackling. You know, you can't do it right 90% of the time. You can't do it right 95% of the time. You're not gonna be perfect and do it right 100% of the time. But if you're disciplined enough, you get it in the high 90s. The same thing for every hospital in America. They all have different records on infection control. They all know what to do. Some of them do it better than others. Uh, the compliance where you are disciplined and executed, it's going to work. As it gets sloppier and sloppier, it's going to be less and less effective. You know, the op-ed was too short. You have limitations. I do expect erosions in compliance. People slipping off their masks is uncomfortable and so forth. Uh, that'll happen more often. People will get closer together. That'll happen more often. When that does happen, those waves or, or swells, as I use the term I did, are going to get up and they may get into waves. Uh, in terms of longer term, you know, my thoughts are no better than your thoughts or anybody else's on here. You know, everything I think could be affected from architecture. You know, maybe uh, companies are going to decide they don't need as much office space. Uh, maybe commercial real estate is is going to take a hit uh, in future. Uh, 
you know, everybody is going to start using Zoom or it's cheaper. You know, I still think you'll still have to get on airplanes for some business, but I would think businesses can save a lot of money by cutting down on travel. Those things are pretty obvious and easy to predict. Uh, but again, you all are in the business world. Uh, most of you are and have a better sense of that than I do. And, and your predictions in that area are probably better than mine. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Eleanor Bigelow. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask Mr. Barry what he thinks about the November election and who he thinks will win. Thank you. I can tell you who I hope wins. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have major problems if Biden loses. You know, this is, you know, the response of this administration is beyond incomprehensible to this pandemic. It's off the scale. Nobody could have imagined it. You know, the New York, you know, you watch Trump's press conferences and he always talks about the 1917 pandemic. Somebody from the New Yorker just this morning asked me about my response. I said it epitomizes everything that's wrong. Number one, ignorance. Number two, the willingness to wrap his arms around a mistake rather than admit the slightest error. And number three, the arrogance that he thinks he can get away with it. You know, unfortunately, there are probably 30% of the American public today who will go to war to tell you the 1918 pandemic actually was in 1917. You know, the, you know, I, I, it's a waste of time to go, you know, but I think if he wins, we're, you know, it's a problem. I think, uh, you know, the whole institutions, the you know Let, let's go on to another question you know, actually actually I, I would kind of like to follow up on that question john because you make a big point in your book and i think in one of your editorials about the fact that this is politics versus science right and that yeah. what we need that the real solution is candor from the top so yeah. do you think any politician including joe biden uh can actually provide the candor that you think is necessary to address the issue? Well, I, mean, I think obviously, obviously Brian, the any, anything would be better than Trump, but. Um, well, you know, there are uh, national leaders around the world who have done just that. Uh, Merkel comes to mind. Uh, mm -hmm. South Korea comes to mind. Singapore comes to mind, uh, where people have, the leadership has been absolutely candid. You know, in Singapore, I said, you know, telling people what they didn't know and why they didn't know it. Uh, you know, Merkel's been great. You know, there are people who who come through and and behave the way you want someone to behave. Uh, going back to those meetings that, you know, 15 years ago when we were talking and conceptualizing the plan, we would discuss who we thought should be a spokesperson. And we would unanimously, everybody in those meetings about how to respond to pandemic agreed unanimously. It should not be a politician. It should not be the president. It should not be the secretary of HHS because no matter how good they were, there would be a substantial minority of the public that didn't believe anything they said. And we felt the perfect spokesperson would have been Everett Koop, who was already deceased, I think at that time, and the second choice was Tony Fauci. And Tony was not part of those meetings. Uh, I mean, I know Tony, uh, we're not good friends, but I, but I know him. But he, we knew back then that he was the guy who should be out there. And I think that, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, certainly the Obama administration left a bullet to the scientists and they were right to do so. Uh, every now and then you need a statement from the president. Yes, you can't, uh, you can't look like you're just delegating everything down, down the road. But yeah, I do think that there are a lot of political figures who would be uh, at least candid enough, and some of them would be great at it. Again, I gave you uh, three examples off the top of my head. I don't know what every country has been doing. 
I know Austria has, has done a very good job. South Africa has done a very good job. I don't specifically know what, you know, how those leaders have been in terms of communicating to their public, but in terms of their overall response, there are a fair number of countries that have, that have done pretty well. Thank you. Ken DeAngelis, you have a question? Yes, John, it's Ken DeAngelis here, and thank you for sharing your insights. Given your comments on the office environment, when, what do the commercial airlines do? How do, how do they fly safely without a vaccine? I wish I could tell you that, you know, my understanding is the ventilation in airlines is actually fairly decent. The problem is proximity of people around you. Uh, you know, my and my understanding may be flawed. I, you know, I'm probably better off just not answering that question rather than speaking off the top of my head. Uh, so I won't. For, for what it's worth, I, I did get a communication both from United and American. They're blocking center seats. So nobody's going to be sitting next to each other. They are certainly decontaminating every plane um, between each trip. Uh, all of their employees, the, the, the uh, flight attendants and all, will be wearing masks to the extent that that's helpful. Uh, I think they are trying really hard to do the right things, but obviously you're cooped up. And, and the, the, the ventilation system, it's, it's really interesting. The ventilation system, the airplanes, is as good as it is in uh, a surgery in surgery at a at a hospital. Um, okay, so they I saw something right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they have they have a system. They actually heat the air up to a very high temperature uh, and then run it through a filter on top of that. So they kill just about anything, and they're recirculating every minute or two in the in the planes. So I'm not suggesting it's totally safe to be in a plane, but it's probably with the steps they're taking that yeah. not as bad. I mean, just taking the middle seat out is, is not going to be enough. No, uh, clearly. clearly. Uh, you know, but I'm glad that I, you know, you confirm my, my impression about the ventilation uh, and having masks on the, you know, people on the plane, uh, the stewards and stewardesses, that's, that's not enough either. Uh, but it every, is every, it every little bit helps, I guess. It's so yeah. Well, the whole idea of these non-pharmaceutical interventions is to layer them. None of them are a magic bullet. But if you put one on top of another on top of another, if you do wear a mask, if you do wash your hands, if you do social distance, if you do make sure that anybody who coughs, coughs into their elbow, if you don't shake hands, if you do all those things, they do add up and they do significantly cut transmission but not to zero. Dwight Jusen, do you have a question? Dwight? Yeah. Mr. Berry, thank you for your book, which is both depressing and comforting, um, and particularly for the tour of pandemics in it. Is there a case against a significant second wave of this virus that you actually believe in? Yes. Uh, and, you know, I spoke to that in the op-ed today. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. Uh, I think the concern that Redfield, you know, the head of CDC had the other day was that you're going to get uh, a significant uptick from this disease on top of influenza, which is going to create enormous, you know, an, an average bad influenza season all but overwhelms hospitals. You throw something like this on top of it, you've got very significant problems for healthcare. Now, everybody's expanding their capacity. Maybe that won't be as big a problem. Uh, in terms of the second wave itself, you know, as I was saying and when I, when I started, I think there will be a more continuous transmission, swells that go up and down if we do it right and have it reasonably under control. Now, what is going to happen, you know, and if we have testing in place, I mean, to have it reasonably on the control, you have to have testing in place, you have to have an infrastructure of contact tracers and all that, 
Now, Tom Frieden said, you know, the former CDC director estimated it would require 300,000 people to do that. I've seen other people, other estimates that it would take 100,000. It's going to take a lot of people, whether it's 100,000 or 300,000. They have to be trained. We have uh, civil liberties issues in terms of using apps and, you know, Bluetooth to recognize whether you within five feet of someone who tested positive and so forth and so on. We have the capacity to do those things. We haven't built the infrastructure for it. I don't know how rapidly we can get that up. Uh, and we haven't resolved the civil liberties problems either. And, uh, you know, Barr's comment the other day was not helpful, I don't think, uh, in terms of alerting the Justice Department to monitor any potential aggressive recommendations by a governor. Uh, none of that really answers your question of the wave. Uh, because I see it as more continuous and that I don't think the summer is necessarily going to tamp it down, that, as I said at the beginning, susceptibility is much more important than seasonality. You know, by the same token, there may be, so I, there may be less of a second wave in the fall uh, that people have feared. And, but, but again, I, when you put that on top of seasonal influenza, it may not take much to tip the scales into a real problem. Howard Newman. Did thank you, thank you, uh, thank you, uh, John. A uh, question relating back to 1918. Um, so you told us that uh, the, the social distancing then and the, uh, and the mitigation factors were less severe than they were today. In fact, the ones today are probably greater than you would have expected, and and we've had compliance much greater than you expected. I believe was how you started this. So my question is, based upon how people came out of 1918 or other other relevant historical precedents, how do you think we're going to respond when we're let out of jail? You know, I think this is a bigger problem than 19. The virus is much less lethal, thank God. Uh, but it's a bigger problem economically and socially, longer term. The reason is that the length of the duration of this illness Everything about this illness takes longer. 1918, influenza would go through a community in six to 10 weeks, then it was gone. There may have been a third wave or a subsequent wave, but in between, there was basically no disease. You know, it may have been, you know, there were still some cases, but very much at a low level. But influenza's incubation period is one to four days. Most people get sick at two. The incubation period for COVID-19 is two to 14 days. Most people get sick at five and a half to six days, triple the length of time. They're sick for a longer period. They shed virus for a longer period. This stretches everything out. Now, we are already in New Orleans, you know, six weeks into closure. And we're only beginning, and it's, pretty much the same everywhere. Some places close down later. We're only beginning to think about lifting some of the restrictions. In influenza, the, the disease would have been out of here by now or about to be out of here, even without any social distancing. In fact, it moves more, I mean, to the extent we do social distance, to the extent that we are successful in, in turning the curve down, that actually means we are lengthening the time it's going to take for this virus to pass through the community because it will burn through the community eventually. Uh, so the problems that we face today have never been faced before. And how people will react, I don't know if it's as simple as whether or not, you know, it isn't, it is not as simple as to say, well, Trump supporters are going to go party. <laughs> that is absolutely not that simple. Uh, I'm on an almost daily call. I guess we cut it back to three days a week with uh, on messaging with 
people from Ogilvy uh, Research and Palantir, you know, data miners, micro targeters, uh, a couple of former governors and political types, all trying to figure out how to define a message. And we got a presentation explaining, you know, hierarchies and freedom lovers and all sorts of things that, you know, where people sit on different continuums. Uh, you know, there are going to people, are, there already are people who are going to flood a restaurant and flood a bar the, the instant it opens. Uh, you know, that was certainly the case in 1918 when, when restrictions were lifted in cities, the theaters were packed. Uh, most places had to, or many places anyway, had to reimpose restrictions because the virus returned with a vengeance. Uh, that may or may not happen here, depending on how the restrictions are lifted. If they're phased in, you know, and monitored carefully, that shouldn't happen. If we let things go, I think that kind of an explosion could recur. And, uh, you know, it, it depends on the state, it depends on the leadership, it depends on the messaging. I think the people are pretty much the same everywhere. It's, it's what they're hearing locally and, and what the restrictions, how they're phased out. Glenn Lowenstein, question? Um, yes, thank you so much, John Barry, and um, for being here. And I want to ask a question. It's a similar question, and it's in the spirit of, of no labels and problem solvers, which is really building trust, not kind of pointing fingers. And I want to ask it, if, if I listen to you um, and I hear you correctly, the situation we're in is okay, trust is going to continue to be an issue at a national and state and local level in terms of democratic government without pointing fingers. Number two, we're going to have swells, bigger or little, maybe they're waves, maybe they're swells. And this is going to have a longer gestation period. It's going to hang around longer than the uh, pandemic that you studied. So if you were talking to no labels and problem solvers, what type of policy would you want to see that recognizes that this is going to hang around for a longer period of time? Well, that's a very good summary of what I said. And uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I think there are plans to reopen. There are half a dozen plans, most of them are pretty rational and most of so I guess you got a presentation on one yesterday, which actually somebody emailed me yesterday, but I never, not, not from, from your group, but I've actually got like, I'm not six or seven plans that came out in the last 48 hours. Uh, I guess all tied to the timing of May 1st when Trump said he was gonna, and I haven't had an opportunity to look at all of them, but they all seem to share uh, a couple of things. Number one, they all seem to share the phasing in, not instantaneous. They all seem to share uh, the testing, the monitoring, the contact tracing, uh, notwithstanding the problems that there are with the testing system and the reliability, sensibility, sensitivity, and, and specificity and so forth. Uh, and, you know, and the nation would need support, you know, the small businesses in, in particular. Uh, I think the funding program needs to be fixed. I know when Congress passes anything in a period of hours almost uh, without committee hearings, uh, there are going to be flaws. I think they need to be addressed. Uh, I think, you want to recommend something that's possible and doable. So what is it that this White House would get behind? That is, to me, the most difficult thing to figure out. Is if the White House isn't really 
at least benevolent, benevolently neutral, then you're going to have such a significant percentage of the country that is not going to be accepting of it. You know, I mean, you have to work with the White House. They're, they're there. So I don't know what they're willing to accept in terms of recommendations. Uh, Can I ask you a follow-up? Sure. So um, in terms of volatility of outcomes, are, are, are we real, are these, if, if we get it wrong, are we going to have 2 million deaths? I mean, what is the volatility of getting yeah. it wrong? I would think that everything that has happened so far is very supportive of those initial estimates that you could get 2 million deaths in the United States. Everything, you know, those first models by, I guess, Mark Lipsitch, uh, who I think very highly of, uh, estimates, you know, 60, 80% of the population would be infected in the normal course of events if we didn't intervene. Uh, and we still don't know what the case mortality is. But I think it's, it's you know, certainly if there were, no, if we screwed everything up, yeah, we'd have close to 2 million deaths. I don't think that's an unreasonable number at all. I think everything that has happened is supportive of a number like that. I do not think that we're gonna screw things up. Even when I'm pessimistic, I don't think we're gonna screw things up so badly that we're gonna approach that number. Uh, but we're at 60,000 right now, and the models were that at least the White House and you know Tony Fauci even cited this number, if I'm not mistaken, uh, of 61,000. That was assuming that controls were going to stay in place until the end of May, and that was the number for the end of May. So we're at that number today, and it's not even May 1st. So that model was way, I mean, everybody said that model was optimistic. I was kind of surprised to see Tony Fauci citing it and gave it more credibility maybe than it deserved, frankly. You know, I don't want to pick a number, but it, it could be, it, it's going to be enough to get people's attention. Nobody's going to be saying, see, I told you so, it wasn't a big deal. Okay, thank you. That in November. David Huff. Yeah, I, I apologize. My uh, camera is on the blink. Um, thank you, John, for your time and for sharing all your thoughts with us. Um, I want to focus on a couple things you talked about. One, the comment that this is going to burn through the population sooner or later. And second, what you said about how this is stretched out in terms of when people show symptoms and how long they show symptoms compared to, say, the 1918 uh, flu. Yesterday, our, on that call with that DREAM team, they mentioned that uh, to do testing properly because of those things you mentioned, you'd need to test everybody who was in the workforce or in school uh, up to five days a week, which would be for everybody in the country, 1.5 billion tests a week, which is obviously not feasible. My question is, do you agree with that? And uh, if, if not, how should we think about testing um, on a more limited basis? And what does it do to the burn-through rate if the burn-through rate is going to happen anyway? Well, you know, number one, I wouldn't think that that number is it's not attainable. So dream team is an appropriate use of the uh, phrase. I don't think it's necessary. Uh, I've seen other studies, and you know, I guess I should have read that one. I, I didn't know until a few minutes before I got on the call that you had had that speaker yesterday. If I had, I would have read the presentation. Uh, you know, I've seen numbers of a, a minimum of half a million a day. I would think that is a bare minimum and probably higher than that. Probably closer to a million to a million and a half a day. They were just saying if you wanted to know if people had it or not, you'd have to test them every couple of days because you could miss them. If they well, yeah, them. of course. And, you know, you can be infected and not have enough to show up on the test and so forth. You get false negatives. Yeah. I mean, there are, I mean, that's a perfect control situation. But, 
you know, it's not going to happen. And the amount of research that would and funding that would have to go into that is it's just not going to happen. But I think you can get a very good picture of where you are with a lot fewer tests. I do think it would the absolute minimum would be half a million a day and probably better if you do a million to a million and a half a day. And I, I think that, did I say a day? Is that weekly? You know, I, I should know that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a day. If it's going to burn through the population anyway, what does the testing rate make that much difference? It allows you to control and monitor. And, you know, I say burn through the population, that's barring interventions. In the countries where the Asian countries in particular, but a few other Western societies as well, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to burn through their populations because of the contact tracing and the quarantine and, and so forth, because I think a vaccine will arrive before that. Uh, you know, I would... I guess why I misspoke in a sense. I think the disease is, the virus will continue to burn. But we are in a race really towards a vaccine that we want to minimize the exposure until we get a vaccine. I think that target, that goal is something that can be achieved if we do things right. You know, I... You know, again, if left to its own devices without any artificial intervention, I would say that within 18 months, 60 to 80 percent of the population would be infected in probably a shorter period of time. And you would then get, you know, the so-called herd immunity. Uh, you've also nobody asked me about immunity. Maybe you had a healthy discussion of it yesterday. Uh, you know, there's, you all familiar with the line, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I think WHO stepped on itself, on its own messages uh, last weekend. They tried to walk it back a little bit. I think all indications are you'll, you'll have immunity for at least a year and maybe, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a lot longer. Uh, but we don't know that for sure. I think it's a reasonable, safe, reasonably safe assumption to base a policy on. Uh, you know, it's possible that it's not the case, but uh, I think it probably is the case. So I digress too much on that. Thank you so much for the uh, the insights. Um, yeah, I, I from a more practical standpoint, obviously there's there's a lot of efforts around bringing therapeutic interventions to bear on this disease, but Certainly, there's, there's a significant amount of time between now and then. And as you think about balancing, protecting the vulnerable with also a measured approach to opening up society and the economy over the coming months, um, based on your insights, we'd love to hear more detailed thoughts around that. Well, I think for one thing, you can do things regionally. Uh, I think, you know, one thing that... Uh, Cuomo, the governor, has said that uh, I disagree with him about the only thing is that if you open up anywhere, it makes it dangerous for the entire country. I don't think that's the case. I think particularly now, but even under normal events, travel is not going to introduce so many new cases to an, to an area that it's going to throw completely out of kilter your efforts to monitor and control. So I think, you know, regionally, of sense. Uh, until yesterday, I thought that you could reopen schools, particularly for elementary grades, younger kids. Uh, but I did see a new scientific study yesterday, but I'd like to get confirmation of it, that said the viral load from kids is the same as adults. Uh, if that's correct, then that may change my thinking. Um, you know, you close schools in influenza because you know kids in influenza are super spreaders. So there was sort of a knee-jerk reaction to do that here. 
there is no evidence, even with even if they have the same viral load, there is no evidence that they are so-called super spreaders. They may spread as much as an adult if they have the same viral load. Even that's not established, even if it's true that they have the same viral load. We did, there are a lot of unknowns here. But until I saw that report, I actually thought schools should reopen and maybe shouldn't even have been closed. Uh, I'm a minority view on that, although you probably all know Mike Osterholm's name and he may, you may have had him as, as, a, as a guest. Mike and I are good friends. We just co-authored a paper that he's submitting today. Uh, and uh, I, you know we kind of agree on schools. Uh, unless he changed his opinion very recently, and I'm I may be in the process of changing mine, as I as I said, uh, you know it, it's just a question of you know maintaining social distancing is very important. So if you can reopen and and do that, and mask the public, and I'm not a great fan of masks. I think they create a false sense of security. Uh, you know, but they, they do do some good if they, if the messaging is, and messaging is so important in this. If people can recognize that the masks are important, but they are no answer. You know, if they can, if they maintain the social distancing, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do. If you have good ventilation, ventilation is incredibly important. You know, in 1918, the advice was open your windows. Well, you know, that was very, very good advice. And that soldiers who got to hospitals and camp hospitals late did better because they were outside than the soldiers who actually were in a hospital bed on the inside. The people on cots on the outside did better. Uh, you know, and I think ventilation is something that's been underemphasized. Uh, in all this, although there's not a lot you can do if you're in a fixed space in a building. I think the, you know, in half of them, if not more than half the modern buildings, you can't open the windows. Um, so I'll cut myself off and so we can get another question. Right. Robert Corn. Robert Corn. last question. Thank you, Mr. Berry. I'd be interested in your thoughts about Sweden's um, handling of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, well, first, they say that it's not, they're being portrayed as a little bit more reckless than they actually are because they say that they are really emphasizing things like social distancing. They are not urging people to go out and have like chicken pox parties or whatever. They're trying to keep people apart. Uh, even if that's correct, and I'm assuming it is, and of course it's a different kind of population. Supposedly they're more responsible than we are. I don't know if that's true or not. That's the line that I've heard. Uh, you know, I, I think it's reckless. And, you know, we'll, we will find out. But personally, I think it's reckless. We do know that a lot more younger people are getting sick than we were perhaps led to believe by Chinese data. Uh, you know, so we, I, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, I hope nobody gets sick. I would much rather be wrong and have everybody survive than be proved right and have more people die. Well, on that positive note. John Barry, thank you so much for sharing with us and your thoughts. It's been a, it's been a great dialogue, and uh, we really appreciate your spending the time with us. Okay, and, well, thanks. And thanks keep, for keep doing the good work. Okay, thanks, and I hope you all stay well. As Mr. Barry notes, there are big differences between the 1918 pandemic and today. For one, most of the deaths from the 1918 influenza were among people between the ages of 20 and 40 while a majority of those killed by COVID-19 have been over 65. Additionally, COVID is thought to be much more transmissible than influenza was, but not as deadly. Mr. Berry stresses, though, that two lessons can be learned from the first pandemic, that social distancing does and clearly has worked, 
and that honesty and transparency from government matters amid a public health crisis. Unfortunately, he thinks our government is coming up short. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.